So you guys are all the ones that got an extra, extra hour this morning, because you got to sleep an extra hour, then this was an extra hour late, so uh, it's good to see everybody. Uh, My name is Robert, I am one of your pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I am so glad you are with us. I will tell you now, my voice is quickly leaving me, uh, so we will not waste too much time, and we'll get started this morning. Uh, I want to welcome those of you who are guests with us, we are glad that you are here Uh, We are in the middle, maybe on the last third, I should probably say, of a series that we've been working on this fall entitled The Real God for the Real World. And normally here at Redemption Hill, we like to go through books of the Bible uh, verse by verse, just start at the beginning and work our way through and try to take what the Spirit of God uh, inspired in the writing of Scripture uh, and and allow Him to help us make sense of it and apply it to our lives. Uh, But this fall, we're, we're taking a bit of a departure from that. And we are working through the Nicene Creed, one of the historic documents of the Christian faith, uh, one of the earliest historic documents of the Christian faith, where church fathers, in the face of of heresy and error, and in the face of a growing and expanding church that that did not know the essentials of of Christianity, uh, they sought together to write a statement or write a creed uh, that, that took the breadth of Scripture and distilled the essential doctrines of the Christian faith down into a distinct an efficient and usable manner uh, that they could use to teach and they could use to help uh, believers in Christ and and followers of Christ to refute error. Uh, This is one of a few, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed that still remain. And so we're actually using the Creed as our our starting point and we're taking the propositions of the Creed and then we're going back to Scripture to see where they came from uh, in a constant effort to remind ourselves that though we're going through the Creed, uh, though we confess the truths of the Creed, uh, the Creed is not on par with Scripture. We've been trying to remind you guys of that every single week. So what we'll do is we will, we will start with a new section of the creed this week, but then we will quickly go into the scriptures to see where the truth of that creed has come from so that we can try to anchor the two together. So what I'm going to do as we get started is I'm going to read for all of us what we have done so far in the Nicene Creed, and then I'll read where we are this week, where we're going this week. Next week, maybe we'll take time and we'll recite it all together. That would be, that'd be fun. But this week, we'll just Listen, I'll read, it'll come up on the screen, um, and from there we'll jump into what we've got this week. So let me start with the creed, we'll start with where we are, um, where we've been, and then we'll get to where we are. So the Nicene Creed starts by confessing the creating work of God the Father, and it goes like this, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen, and from there it moves quickly into the bulk of the creed, where it moves to the rescuing work of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And this is the bulk of the creed where we spent most of our time. The creed says this, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. This is where we've been so far in our series. And that second section of the creed on the person and work of Jesus makes up the bulk of the Nicene Creed. And then this week, we're going to move to that third section, and we're going to move from the rescuing work of Jesus Christ to the recreating work of God the Holy Spirit. And this is what the creed's going to say. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. 
So this morning, what I want to do is, is threefold. These are, these are my aims for the morning. And, and this series is, is different, like we've said earlier, from our normal series where we go verse by verse through a book of the Bible. This series lends itself to a little more of a teaching atmosphere. And so I'm going to do my best to limit that, that classroom sense. Uh, but we are going to go through the scriptures. And here are my aims, is that we could ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Really, who, who is the Holy Spirit? And does the Holy Spirit really matter for our daily life? Is knowing who the, Holy Spirit is, who the Holy Spirit is of any real significance or importance to our daily life? And if so, what is it that the Holy Spirit does that really matters? Those are my three aims this morning. And uh, I'll say this from the outset, uh, that attempt takes an entire year in seminary. There is an entire year spent in seminary on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So just know that I know that as we get started. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to touch on those three things, and we're going to touch on them, and it will be about a 50,000-foot level. So for some of you, you're going to have a million things that jump up, and I might not answer that question, but another time or another place, we'll get to it. So know that this is a dense subject. We've said before, in studying the person and work and the character of God, it's like trying to stuff an ocean into a raindrop. So this morning, we are going to pray because we're going to need God's help uh, this morning as we get one week to touch on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the creed. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll kind of get after it. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for the time that we have together to come um, as your people. Uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit uh, would help us, compel us uh, to surrender our hearts, surrender our minds this morning to the truths of your word, uh, your word that he inspired the writing of, that he preserved Uh, the writing of, that he has kept for us. And we ask this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the truths of Scripture in our hearts and in our minds, that we would see the beauty of Jesus Christ, that uh, we would surrender ourselves and we would confess our sin and repentance and place our hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And also that we would have a better appreciation of you, Holy Spirit, who you are, uh, what you do, that we would come to recognize you rightly um, as divine and as personal, Uh, and that we begin to treasure your work in our lives. We ask this for uh, your glory, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So first off, who is, excuse me, who is the Holy Spirit? Now, we have to be honest from the outset. There is a lot of confusion out there, at least in the church, about who the Holy Spirit is. And there's two main camps, if we're really honest. I'm not going to get into denominations and books. Two main ways that we tend to relate to the Holy Spirit. The first one is we tend to relate to the Holy Spirit uh, as though the Holy Spirit is a force, is a thing. Um, It's an impersonal sense or illumination that emanates from God. It's not a person. We tend to relate to the Holy Spirit as some kind of impersonal thing. And what happens in the church is so many times in in a desire to know uh, who the Holy Spirit is, but more importantly, what the Holy Spirit does, we rush to learn about what the Holy Spirit does while not paying careful enough attention to who he actually is. And as we begin to rush into understanding what the Holy Spirit does without knowing who he really is, it begins to twist our understanding of who he is. And as that begins to get twisted, it begins twisting then our understanding of what it is the Holy Spirit does. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it's of first importance, it's of utmost importance that we determine for ourselves in our minds and, and in our hearts who the Holy Spirit really is. Is the Holy Spirit really a divine person worthy of your praise, of your faith, of your love, of your surrender? Is the Holy Spirit to be worshipped and glorified with the Father and the Son as the Nicene Creed confesses? Or is the Holy Spirit just an illuminating force that comes from God? One popular 
opinion of the Holy Spirit comes from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you're asked, they would just simply say this, that the Holy Spirit is not God. It's not even a person. It's God's active force. His energy projected out from himself. Now, this energy is not blind or uncontrolled. It's at all times under God's control and can be best likened to a radar beam. This is their understanding of the Holy Spirit. And and though you may snicker at that and you may laugh at that or you may scoff at that and go, oh, that's wrong, as it is, if you're really honest about how you relate to the Holy Spirit, you might relate to the Holy Spirit more like a Jehovah's Witness would relate to the Holy Spirit than a follower of Christ should relate to the Holy Spirit. You've got to ask yourself and come to a conclusion for yourself. Is the Holy Spirit a divine person? Because if he is, and we do not know him as such, and we do not honor him as such, then what we're doing with our lives is we are robbing God of the worship and the praise that he is rightly due. So it's of utmost importance that we settle in our minds and in our hearts who the Holy Spirit is. This has significant implications. If the Holy Spirit is simply a force that we have to get a hold of in our weakness so that we can put to use in our life like Star Wars. I told the first services, I'll tell you guys this before we even get in here. I was told recently at a dinner party that I might be the only person in my generation who's over the age of 35, closer to 40 than 30, who has never seen Star Wars until this year. Never seen Star Wars until this year. Um, And really, the reason I saw Star Wars was because my son, uh, for some reason, Star Wars is hugely popular with kindergartners and first graders. And he was coming home every day from school talking about Star Wars, playing these games and rattling off these characters, and he's never seen the movie. He has no idea who they are. They're just playing at school. And so we thought, well, Let's just watch Star Wars. And so I began to watch Star Wars with my son, and, and I'll be honest, that parts of it are intriguing, but I still don't get the, uh, the fascination with it. But he, he loves it. But I tell you what, I've thought more about it this week than I had in a long time, because we've got to ask ourselves, in, in all reality, do you relate to the Holy Spirit more like those in Star Wars relate to the Force? I mean, you'd laugh, but it's true. Is the Holy Spirit to you an impersonal force that you've got to figure out how to get more of, how to gain mastery over and control of, so that when you find yourself in a situation of need, you can appropriate its power to get what it is you want? Is the Holy Spirit an impersonal force that you have to apprehend and use, like the force in Star Wars, or is the Holy Spirit a real and divine person? The third person of the Trinity, fully God, so infinitely wise and so infinitely holy, so infinitely majestic and merciful, who we do not have to get a hold of to use in our will, but who actually has a hold of us and who uses us for his perfect will and for his good pleasure. How you answer that question in your life has radical implications. One of those answers leads us to walk around being preoccupied with the question, how can I get more of the Spirit? What do I have to do to just get more of the Spirit? What do I have to pray? What do I have to say? Do I stand on one leg and shake one hand? Do I stick my, what do I do to get more of the Spirit? I just got to apprehend more of this thing. The other answer leads us in a totally different direction and begins to cultivate in our heart and in our soul a disposition that asks a different question. That question is how much of me does the Holy Spirit actually have? How much more of me does the Holy Spirit actually have? One answer leads to pride and self-sufficiency. The other leads to humility. As we begin to recognize 
the Holy Spirit for who he is, the Spirit of God, the infinite, majestic, glorious, holy, and powerful Spirit of God that has made himself known to us. And he's not just made himself known to us, but as we'll see, who resides in us and has taken possession of our lives for his glory and for his purposes. When that becomes the reality that we begin to treasure in our heart, it begins to lay us low in humility. And so it's of utmost importance that you answer for the question in your own mind and in your own heart, who is the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit to you more like the Jedi Force? Or is he a real divine person, third person of the Trinity? And if he is, what does he do? And what's his role that we should say with the writers of the creed that he is to be worshiped and glorified? So this morning, to try to distill some of this down to a a singular location and try to help us, we're going to look at how Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to try to first answer the question who the Holy Spirit is. Is he personal and is he divine by looking at the way Jesus talked about him? So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of John. Jesus is most comprehensive teaching and communication about the Holy Spirit you find in the book of John starting in chapter 14. And the context of what he's going to say actually starts back in chapter 13. I'll kind of catch you up to speed. As I was reading this, I I want you to kind of catch the reality of what's going on here in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. I mean, life with Jesus for the disciples had to be one where there were multitudes of days and nights where they were just left scratching their head. What did he just say? What did he just do? I mean, I've thought more times than I can even count. I've thought as I've read the Gospels, how many side conversations occurred between the disciples after Jesus said something or did something? I mean, how many times? Have you you ever had the the, the meeting after the meeting? You have a meeting with people and it breaks and then like two or three of you gather together and you have your own little conversation about what was just said and what you just heard and what just happened? I mean, how many times the disciples have to just get together one night and just go, is he for real? What did he just say? I mean, life with Jesus for those three years um, was full of interesting and strange nights. But John chapter 13 begins to record what had to be one of the strangest nights in the life of the disciples and their following in in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, We partly know it because they said it was confusing and strange. But the circumstances and what happens uh, begins to draw us in and you can begin to try to put yourself in in their place. John chapter 13, I'll just kind of catch you up. Uh, They're gathering together to celebrate the Passover together. This is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and handed over to be crucified for our sin. And they gather together to celebrate the Passover. And while they're celebrating the Passover, Jesus, the one they have followed, the one they have seen do miracles, the one they have been rebuked by, encouraged by, and laughed with, gets up and humbles himself and takes his tunic and ties it around his waist and he begins to wash their feet. Something they would not have been able to understand. Something that they would not have been able to comprehend because of his role in the group. And from there, he begins to talk about the fact that somebody in the room is going to betray him. John actually already recorded that, the, that, that it was already within the heart of Judas to betray Jesus here now. And Jesus begins to talk to them and tell them that somebody in the room is about to betray them. So it's a heavy night at Passover anyway. Passover is one of the heavy fest, feasts and, and celebrations where they're remembering God's work and delivering them from uh, bondage and slavery in Egypt. It's a heavy time. And Jesus then begins to kind of blow their perceptions of things as he washes their feet and then tells them in the room that somebody's about to betray them. And so you can imagine the mood just kind of begins to take a nosedive in there. It probably got a little quiet as he was talking. And after he talked about someone actually betraying him, he begins to talk about the fact that he's going to be leaving them, that he's going to be going back to the Father from where he came. And from there, he looks at Peter and he tells Peter that this night, you're going to deny me three times before the night is over. 
and the mood just has got to be just continuing to plummet. Somebody's going to betray me. You're going to deny me three times before the night's over, and I'm going to be leaving you. And Jesus continues to talk more about the fact that he's going to be leaving. And then when you get to John chapter 14, he's going to begin a discussion about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit that I want us to pay attention to. And I'm going to read through the sections in John 14, 15, and 16 where he talks about the Holy Spirit. And the first thing I want you to notice when we're asking the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Is he he a real person? Is he a divine real person? Is he the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity? First thing I want you to do as we read this is I want you just to notice the pronouns Jesus uses when he describes the Holy Spirit. So John 14, starting in verse 15, I'm just going to read, and I'll tell you where we're going. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees, what's the pronoun? Him. Notice it doesn't say it. Sees him. Nor knows, what's the pronoun? Him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so they've got to be wondering, who's he talking about? Well, verse 25, John 14, he's going to give them some more clarity. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, verse 26. But the helper, so that's who he was just talking about, he's going to clarify it for him. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, again that pronoun, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And from there, Jesus keeps teaching. He begins to talk to them about abiding in him. He begins to speak to them in metaphors. And they'll even say in the chapter that it's confusing to them. They don't understand what he's saying, but Jesus will speak to them in metaphors about what it means to abide in him. And that as they abide in him, their life will bear fruit. It'll bear fruit for his glory, but there's a time when the Father will prune the vines and that there's pain. And there will be a time when the world will hate you as a follower of Christ. So the mood has got to dip back down again after the promise of this helper that Jesus was talking about. And then chapter 15, verse 26, he's going to return to his discussion about the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says, but when the helper, and he just told us who that is, right? It's the Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, <clears throat> whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, here's that pronoun again, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear, will bear, I had a hard time saying that in the first one. I got to drink water for that one. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And then what had to be at this point, one of the most confusing things Jesus has said to them in, the, in, in all of his teaching. I mean, he said some confusing things, but put yourself in their position. Three years with him. All the time with him, what you have seen, how you have begun to change, the hope that you have put in him. Peter's already confessed him to be the Christ, the hope and the faith that you put in this man. Now listen to what he's going to say to him. <clears throat> Chapter 16, starting in verse 6. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now I'm sure it has. I'm sure they're exceedingly sorrowful at this point. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus just told them that it was going to be to their advantage that he not be there anymore. I mean, given the night, given the circumstances, given all that he said so far, and I wish we had time to walk through John 13, 14, and 15 to get to this spot just so you could taste the intensity and taste the seriousness of the moment, taste all that Jesus had said. He just looked at them and said, it's going to be better for you if I actually get out of here. Thank you so much. Appreciate that, man. Brilliant. Thank you. I should go back and try to say that again without stumbling. All that he, he has said, all that he has done, 
If you could taste the intensity of it, he just said, it's going to be better for you if I leave. It's going to be for your advantage. Because if I don't, the helper, who he's already said was the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send, there's that pronoun, him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because you do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He was aware of what's going on. I wish we could just taste the intensity of the moment. You can't bear them now. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Is the Holy Spirit simply an impersonal force, or is the Holy Spirit the very Spirit of God, a divine, personal reality, the third person of the Trinity? Notice the overwhelming pronouns that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit. He did not say, I will go and I will send the Spirit and it will bear witness to me. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to go and I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the Spirit. It will guide you. It will comfort you. It will help you. It will teach you. It will glorify me. It will bear witness for me. That's not what he said. He said, he will do those things. He will teach. He will God. He will comfort. He will glorify. He will witness. Why? Very simply, not a trick question. It's can't do those things. It's can't bear witness. Give it a try one day. Call an it to the witness stand. Call it to the witness stand and see if an it can bear witness to whatever it is that the trial is going on for. It can't do those things. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Jesus is describing the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in terms that can only be fulfilled by a person. A person. And so we see just in this one little snippet of Jesus' teaching about the Holy Spirit. And this is not all that Jesus had to say about the Holy Spirit. This is just one section to try to narrow it down for us. Just in this section, in 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus teaching his disciples. And in his teaching of his disciples about the Holy Spirit, we get glimpses of the truths of the Holy Spirit's deity and of his personality. We get a glimpse of his divine residence, of his divine origin. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit, the helper, will be sent to them by the Father in Jesus' name. And that one day Jesus, he said, I'll actually send him. The Holy Spirit resides in eternity with God the Father and God the Son. We see just a hint at the omniscience of the Holy Spirit. The divine attribute of omniscience. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, the helper is going to come. He is going to teach you what? Do you remember? All things. All things. He knows all things, and he will teach you all things. If we were to just widen the lens a little bit outside of the Gospel of John, you'll see this more clearly represented in 1 Corinthians. If Paul writing a letter to the church in Corinth, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. You don't have to turn there. It won't come up. Just listen. Paul says, The Spirit searches everything, 
even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, that helper that Jesus talks about is omniscient. He is divine in his knowledge. And the very title that he's given by Jesus in John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit speaks of his divinity. Holiness is a divine attribute. And you see it given to the Spirit by Jesus himself. These are just glimpses of the divinity of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of Jesus. And there's glimpses of the personality of the Holy Spirit, the personal nature of the Holy Spirit in that teaching and what he does and how he does it. But if we were just going to cast a net out a little bit wider and we're going to take time to go through many of the places where the scriptures bring the deity and the personality of the Holy Spirit to bear so we might know him for who he is, you would see a a list of places throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, that bear witness to this, the deity and the personality of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to give you a few. We're not going to have time to go through them. I wish, I wish we did. We may stop on a couple, but if you wanted to see the, the divine omnipresence of the Holy Spirit, that he is everywhere at all times, you could go to Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8. You can write these down for yourself and go back and, and check. There you'll see the divine omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verse 14. If you were to read that, you would see the eternality of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, that the helper that Jesus is talking about is eternal. He is eternal with God the Father and God the Son. If you wanted to see more of the omnipotence, the divine power of the Holy Spirit, you could go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. And there you'd hear of the omnipotence, the divine power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the places where we see the equality of the Holy Spirit with God the Father, where we see them referred to as one and the same, is in Acts chapter 5. And I'll read this one to you just so you can see here, even in this teaching, when Paul's speaking, or Peter's speaking in Acts chapter 5 to Ananias, you'll see, him create, you'll see him speak of this divine equation that speaks of the equality of the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. The story is famous for a lot of you. Ananias and Sapphira sold land, and they kept back parts of the proceeds from giving it to the church, and they had promised to give it to the church. And if you know the story, you know what happens to them. But upon confronting them, this is what Peter said to them. Acts 5, 3 and 4. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now, he said, why have you filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now listen to what he says. You have not lied to man, but to God. There, in his confrontation with Ananias, Peter equates the Holy Spirit with God. So here we even see connections of his, and, and expressions of his divinity here in, in this section in Acts. But if we were to read other places, uh, we could even talk about what the, the creed spoke about, where the Holy Spirit is said to have spoken through the prophets of old. But the Holy Spirit was the one who spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament and inspired the, the writing of what we have now in the Old Testament of the Scriptures. Well, in Acts chapter 28... The Apostle Paul, this is where the the writers of the Creed get this. We had someone ask this in the first service, so I thought I'd I'd show you. In Acts chapter 28, uh, the Apostle Paul, Acts 28 verse 5, it says this, And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. So the Apostle Paul was preaching, and he said something that angered the people that were listening to him. And it angered them so much they had to leave. And this is what Paul said. He said, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. So Paul just said that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophet Isaiah, and then Paul went on to quote Isaiah uh, chapter, what was it, um, Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. 
And Paul went on to speak about Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And those who were listening to him, those religious Pharisees who Paul was speaking to would have known that Isaiah 6 was a prophecy of Yahweh, of God Almighty speaking to Isaiah. And there Paul equated Yahweh, God Almighty, with the Holy Spirit. So you see bits of his divinity in in Acts chapter 28. And one of my favorites that plays plays out in how we relate to the Holy Spirit in particular is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Again, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, um, talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, especially how the Holy Spirit gifts the church for his purposes and his work in the earth. Paul says this to the church, chapter 12, verse 11. All of these, talking about the church, are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit. Who apportions to each one, each person, individually as he wills. So we see that the Holy Spirit, the divine Spirit of God, has a will. That he has a a purpose. The Spirit is not some power that we have to get a hold of and and use according to our whims and our desires, but is a person of divine majesty and, and wisdom who uses us and gifts us according to his will for his purposes. He has a divine will. And as we begin to wrestle with who the Holy Spirit really is, and not just who he is in our mind, but how we relate to him with our lives, the distinction will make all the difference in helping us to relate to him and also treasure him for who he is and what he does. See, this is where so many of us get off course. We're taught to to relate to the Holy Spirit through a sense of struggle. I don't know if you come from this background, but we're taught to struggle with God, to struggle with the Holy Spirit. Just keep pressing forward so you can get more of him. How do I get more of him? Well, say this and do this. Well, persevere to get more of the Spirit. Get more of the Spirit, and then you can apply the work of the Spirit when you find yourself in a difficult scenario. Again, not to be funny, but it's helped me tremendously. If you've seen Star Wars, there's that great scene when, when Luke is with Yoda in the swamp. You don't have to admit that you've seen it. But you probably have. I'm the, again, I'm the only one who hasn't seen it. But Luke is with Yoda in the swamp, and Yoda's trying to, to disciple him, to teach him, but Luke can't seem to appropriate the force rightly. He can't seem to get enough of the force to use it right to get his fighter plane out of the swamp. You know what I'm talking about? His fighter plane's in the swamp. He can't get it out. He keeps trying, he keeps trying, and he can't do it. He can't seem to get enough of the force to make it work. And there's so many of us that are taught to relate to the Holy Spirit this way. We would never confess with our mouths that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. We would all say, yes, we agree, the Holy Spirit is a third person of the Trinity, a divine person, God of God. But when we relate to the Holy Spirit, we relate to him like the force. Like we've got to do whatever we can do to get our minds and our hands around getting enough of him, getting more of him, so that when things happen, we can just, I don't know, stick our hands out and do like Luke and get it to do whatever we want it to do. I mean, if you watch Christian television, you'll see them doing that. But we have to persevere and struggle and just try to get more of the Holy Spirit so that when things go bad, we can appropriate the Holy Spirit to change the outcome of circumstances. We can use the power of the Holy Spirit to achieve our purposes and our ends. And all while, if you come from that background, if you've experienced that, and I, I grew up in that background to a degree. You find yourself discouraged, always searching but never finding, and there's a reason why. It's because the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal divine power for us to get a hold of, for us to try to stockpile so that when we face a certain situation, we can unleash it and get the desired outcome of our minds and our hearts. That's not who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is a person an infinitely wise and infinitely mighty person. 
God of God who is willing to take possession of us and use us according to his own perfect will. And as we begin to rightly understand who he is and can begin to rightly relate to him for who he is as a divine person, this becomes good news. Because honestly, if, if, if he was an impersonal force that we could simply acquire and then find the right way to stockpile more and more of the Holy Spirit and the power, could you begin to imagine the way that sinful men and women like you and I would use such power? I mean, honestly, let's just be real honest about some of this. Could you really imagine the way that we would appropriate such power? Some of you, again, come from backgrounds where you've seen this expressed. You've seen this taught. But when we rightly understand who he is and we begin to relate to the Holy Spirit for who he is, just begin to think of the joy, the joy that can begin to take over our heart when we realize that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, one who is infinite in wisdom, infinite in might, infinite in holiness, who never errors, who transforms us, who resides in us, who teaches us, who guides us, who comforts us, who empowers us to be used according to his perfect will. This is the Holy Spirit, the divine third person of the Trinity. And getting this settled in our hearts and beginning to worship him rightly for who he is enables us to treasure him for his work in us and through us. We begin to see that it's not about getting more of the Holy Spirit, but recognizing that it's us that the Holy Spirit actually has. We don't have to acquire more of him. He actually has us. So along with a general misunderstanding about who the Holy Spirit is, we also tend to dismiss the importance of the Holy Spirit. Because we misunderstand who he is, we tend to devalue who the Holy Spirit really is. And sometimes it's out of ignorance, sometimes it's out of fear, uh, sometimes it's out of experience. Um, He's kind of like to us, you know, the Beatles. There's John, there's Paul, and there's two other people, right? We don't know who they are and what they really contributed, but we know they were part of the band, so they probably made the money. And if you're honest, again, you're laughing. I'm not trying to be funny for funny's sake. If you're laughing, this is how we tend to relate to the Holy Spirit. In our understanding of the gospel and of Christianity, there's God the Father and there's God the Son, and we know there's the Holy Spirit, but does he really matter? We might even rightly understand who he is, but what difference does he really make? And that's tragic. It's tragic. And so before we we take a few minutes to look at the different ways that Jesus speaks of not only who the Holy Spirit is, but what he actually does, it'll be helpful for us to consider just how important the Holy Spirit was in the life and the ministry of Jesus. I mean, this is something that the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, all fail to emphasize. I mean, they rightly talk about Jesus' miraculous birth, and they, they toss the Holy Spirit credit there. But then they jump straight to his death in our place, his subsequent resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God, and some his promised return. But none of them emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. None of them actually talk about Jesus' life. I mean, how did Jesus live? How did Jesus resist sin? How did Jesus love his enemies? How did Jesus live for three? This one got me. I don't know if it will get you, but every now and then it got me. How did Jesus live day in and day out for three years with Judas? I don't know if you've ever been betrayed. I don't know if you've ever lived close with someone that you couldn't trust. How did Jesus live three years day in and day out with Judas? How did Jesus actually go to the cross and endure the wrath of God exhausted on his body for our sin? Not for his. He knew no sin. For our sin. And yet proclaim, Father, forgive them. 
How did Jesus actually do it? Now, if you're honest, some of us have gotten to the place, and we talked about this when we went through the person and work of Jesus. We tend to think, well, yeah, Jesus was fully God. That's how he did it. He was fully God. And yes, he was fully God. But as we studied week in and week out in Philippians chapter 2, Paul said that Jesus set aside his divine rights. Jesus emptied himself. He willfully chose not to use his divine rights as he was fully man here on this earth. Yes, fully God, but yes, fully man. And some people dismiss the way that Jesus lived his life because they think Jesus was God. He didn't really suffer. He didn't really feel pain. He wasn't, didn't really feel the sting of betrayal because he was God, but he was fully man. So how in everything that Jesus faced and every temptation and circumstance that he's familiar with that you and I deal with, how did he actually do it? Well, the scriptures are clear. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. From his conception by the Spirit, where the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary, to his baptism where the Holy Spirit rested on Jesus, which signals for us that from this point forward, all that Jesus is going to do and say is through the leading and the guiding and the empowerment and the presence of the Holy Spirit with him. Through the Holy Spirit's resting on Jesus at his baptism, the Gospels record Jesus being led by the Spirit. Luke chapter 2 records that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with men and God. So he studied, he learned, and he grew, and he devoted himself to the study of scriptures. He willfully chose to do that. He willfully chose to learn. The scriptures also say that he was operating in the power of the Spirit. And in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus preached his first sermon back in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus actually opened up the scroll and read Isaiah chapter 61 and declared that it had been fulfilled right there in their presence, that the Holy Spirit had anointed him for what he was about to do. How did Jesus say no to sin? Holy Spirit. How did he heal? How did he cast out demons? It's about the power of the Holy Spirit. For those of you who grew up in what are called charismatic churches, Jesus is the epitome of what it means to be charismatic. Charismatic is defined by the life of Jesus. That's what it means. Jesus was spirit-led, spirit-guided, and spirit-empowered. And after he went to the cross and died in our place for our sins, was dead and was buried, it was the very spirit of God, the scriptures say, that raised Jesus from the dead. And when he spent 40 days with his disciples after he was raised from the dead and taught them the scriptures, showed them how everything pointed to him, he said, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to wait. And I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the spirit. The very spirit that has empowered him, that has guided him, that has led him, that has now raised him from the dead, the very spirit of God, I'm going to send to you and you will be my witnesses from here and to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus said. This was the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. So we should not neglect, neglect the importance of the Holy Spirit in our life. So now let's look at what Jesus says in John 14, 15, and 16 as quick as we can about the importance of the Holy Spirit in our life. Not only who he is, but what he does. Let me just point out a few. We don't have time to go through them all. John chapter 14, verse 17. This is one of my favorites. Jesus says, you'll know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, Given who the scriptures have said the Holy Spirit is, the third person of the Trinity, divine reality, divine person, not impersonal force. 
As you begin to set your minds and your hearts on this, this becomes staggering when you actually begin to think about it. That this promise of Jesus is related to the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit that conceived Jesus, led Jesus, guided Jesus, empowered Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus just said, well, not only dwell with you, as amazing as that would be, I mean, think about how amazing that would be if you rightly understood who the Holy Spirit was and we had a promise from Jesus himself that that Holy Spirit would dwell with us. Think of how amazing that would be. As amazing as that is, Jesus says he's not only going to dwell with you, he is actually going to reside in you. He will dwell in you. And this is simply the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise that God had made to his people. God had spoken to his people through the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36. He said this, the day's going to come and I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all of your idols I will cleanse you I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules this is simply what theologians use a fancy word for to call the doctrine of regeneration Apart from the work of God through the Spirit of God, our hearts are like stone. And when we hear the truth about who God is in Christ, that truth bounces off our hearts like bullets off a rock. Our hearts are dead to the reality of who God is for us in Christ. Until God, through the work of his Holy Spirit, does the work of regeneration, where he takes the heart of stone, the heart that is dead to the realities of who he is, and he snatches it out, And he replaces it with a new heart, a heart of flesh. And not only a new heart, but he then gives us his very spirit. I mean, just think about this for a second with your own life. If you are a follower of Christ, as wonderful as it is to celebrate the work of Jesus in our place and the forgiveness of sins, the cleanliness from our idols and from our sins that God talked about through Ezekiel, as much as we treasure and celebrate the forgiveness and the cleansing that comes through Jesus, How much do we celebrate the fact that we're not just forgiven and made right and cleansed, but that we're made absolutely new? We have a new heart, and a new heart has new desires. For those who are followers of Christ, there are new desires in your heart. You're beginning to want to honor Jesus and to glorify Jesus and to obey Jesus. And the very compulsion to do that, to have those new desires, comes not just from a new heart, but the fact that the Spirit of God is living in you compelling you to want what God wants, compelling you towards obedience in God's statutes and God's commands. This begins to make all the sense in the world to the most butchered texts in the Psalms. How many of you know exactly what I'm about to say? Psalm chapter 37, verse four says this. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now that's not one of the most butchered verses in the Psalms, I don't know what is. But when you begin to rightly understand who the Holy Spirit is and the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating your heart in removing your hard heart and giving you a heart of flesh and then also living and working in you to compel you towards holiness and obedience and and delight and glorifying the statutes of God, you begin to recognize that you can rightly delight in who God is and what he has done. And your new heart will share the same desires of God. And when you desire the things of God to glorify Christ and to honor God, and you have these new desires from this new heart, God gives you the very desires that you have in your heart. And the very desires that you have come from God himself. 
And the work of the Spirit calls us to a, a new life of worship, which is what our new hearts want at the deepest level. We want to live for Jesus and glorify Jesus and give our lives to make much of Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit begins to do in our hearts and in our lives. And on an even deeper level, if you think about it this way, in your struggle with sin and in your battle with the presence of sin and temptation in this fallen world, if you can begin to treasure the reality of who the Holy Spirit is and what he has done in regenerating your heart and in giving you a new heart with new desires and a new power for obedience that comes from his work in you, that he is compelling you to want what God wants. When you are struggling with sin and when you are struggling with temptation, when you're in a difficult circumstance and a difficult relationship, when it's friction and when it's tense, you can look at yourself or you can look at that person and you can be reminded and encouraged by the work of the Holy Spirit and knowing that your potential to change your potential to be transformed, your potential to mature, your potential to put, pat, put this sin to death is not limited by your will or by your wisdom. Your potential to transformation and maturity is limited by the very spirit of God himself, which is infinite. If you are a follower of Christ, this is your present potential for maturity and transformation. This is the present potential for your marriage. This is the present potential for the relationships that you struggle with. Your potential is not measured by your will or by your wisdom, but by the very presence of the Spirit of God. We begin to delight ourselves in God through a new heart that he has given us, empowered by his Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who gets our hearts happy about God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that gets our hearts happy about God. Just listen to what Jesus said. I'm just going to read it to you. I just want you to hear it. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. It's the Holy Spirit that begins to bring to remembrance in your heart and in your mind all that Jesus has said about who he is. All that he has said about who he is and what he has done. When the Holy Spirit comes whom I send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. It's the Holy Spirit that bears witness to our hearts and our lives about the truth of who Jesus is. It's the Holy Spirit who brings to mind and teaches us the truthfulness about the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit working in our new hearts that creates new delights and new desires in our heart to find Jesus glorious and satisfying. And Jesus said, it's the Holy Spirit who will glorify me. He'll take what's mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the principal work of the Holy Spirit, to glorify Jesus. This is the principal work of the Holy Spirit, to glorify Jesus. It's as though the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts and on our hearts to cast a spotlight on the person and work of Jesus. If you've ever been by a building downtown or a historic building that has floodlights aimed on it, just these beautiful lights aimed and perfectly positioned around the building to just illuminate the building at night, it's as though the very Spirit of God who has taken up residence in our hearts uses the Scriptures to illuminate to our minds and to our hearts the beauty of who Jesus is. This is what He does. He illuminates the truthfulness of Christ encourages our understanding and our faith that we might embrace the truth about Christ for who he is and delight in it. 
The Spirit bears witness to Christ, to our own spirit. And we don't just, this is one, we talk about this, I just want you to pay attention to this and how we talk about it. The Holy Spirit is not just a nice illumination that helps us just see truth about Jesus and then we can figure out a way to treasure that truth about Jesus. You have to remember who the Holy Spirit is. He's a person who's taken up residence in our hearts and he teaches us the truth of God. He guides us. It's as if he takes us by the hand and he leads us on the paths where God would have us to walk. He convinces us of the truthfulness of the scriptures. Over and over again, as Jesus was teaching about the Holy Spirit, who he is and what he does, he refers to him as a helper. Some of your Bibles will say comforter. And I want you to recognize that this is a very, very personal and tender name for the Spirit. I mean, so many times, and I'm not all of us at some point or another, get caught up in thinking about the Holy Spirit and relating to the Holy Spirit in those impersonal force-like ways, in those Star Wars-like ways. The Holy Spirit can seem so remote, so far away, so mysterious. But if we can begin to treasure this name, Helper, this name, Comforter, once it gets into our hearts and we understand the Holy Spirit rightly for who he is, this begins to absolutely abolish the darkness of loneliness and isolation in our hearts. I mean, honestly, how many of us could truly be utterly lonely? And the very Spirit of God has taken up residence in us. And as our helper, Jesus said the Holy Spirit teaches and guides and glorifies Jesus. He gifts us for mission, empowers us for mission, changes the desires of our hearts and compels us towards holiness and obedience. But it's the tenderness of the helper that I want to end with today. It's the tenderness of God the Holy Spirit that I have grown to love and and cherish so much in the last few years widen the lens just a little bit. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter eight. He says this, that the Holy Spirit, this helper that Jesus talks about, the very spirit that guided Jesus, led Jesus, empowered Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead, this spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I'm not sure in your life, I I don't know all of you and I certainly don't know all of your stories. I'm not sure in your life if you've ever come to that point of utter weakness when you're faced with something, a circumstance or a situation where you have prayed and you have prayed and you have prayed and you've got nothing left to say. You have cried all the tears that you're going to be able to cry. And you've gotten to a place where you don't even know how to pray anymore. I've only been there once. It's a few years ago, almost four years ago now, when our son, our, our, our second son, my wife was pregnant with him. And we found out that he wasn't going to make it. We found out at the 20-week ultrasound that he has some significant problems and that he had less than a 1% chance to make it. And we spent months going from doctor to doctor and hospital to hospital, having different procedures done and different things done, trying to to get him to the place where he could be born so that the doctors could do whatever they could do to try to intervene. And if he could get to one thing, to another thing, to another thing, maybe it would work. Months and months and months spent praying, 
months and months and months spent crying. And as the months continued on and the days continued on and the tears continued on, guilt and condemnation began to pile up in my heart because here I was a pastor and I was getting to a place where I had nothing left to say. I would try to pray and I didn't even know what to pray. I got to the place where I couldn't even cry anymore. My wife and I would be talking about what was going on and she'd be crying and I would have to apologize and just say, I'm with you. It hurts so hard, so much, and so deep, but I can't even cry. I mean, I've got nothing left. And I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray. And so condemnation and guilt would begin to pile up in my heart. Because as a dad, I was just dying. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say anymore. And as a pastor, I felt like I was supposed to lead people in a certain direction to understand who God was and and what was going on, but I didn't even know how to pray anymore. I've never felt so weak. I've never felt so hopeless, and I've never felt so so insecure and, 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 and and, 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 and impotent in my abilities. And I was driving one morning, and I like to think when I drive, I like to think when I take a shower. And I was just driving around the city one morning, and I was just thinking. And again, I didn't even know what to pray. I, I, I just was lost. I felt just helpless to even pray. And the work of the Holy Spirit became aware in my heart as he began to teach me, and he began to guide me. And he began to magnify and make much of Christ. And I began to remember, and he brought to my mind this text. And I'd probably preach this text. I'd probably taught this who knows how many times. But that morning, the sweetness of this text gripped my soul and is yet to let go. The infinite spirit of God. God himself, who led Jesus, who empowered Jesus, who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus then sent to take residence in my heart, to remove a heart of stone and to put in a heart of flesh. This spirit, infinite in wisdom and power, was taking the desires and the longings of my heart that in myself I had even lost words to express. And he was taking them to God the Father on my behalf. That in my weakness, he was interceding and praying for me. This is the helper that we have. This is the comforter that we have. And I want, and I know this is just a drop in the bucket about who the Holy Spirit is. And for some, it may have more questions than even encouragement. But here's my prayer and here's my desire. I want us to realize what a gift we've been given. That God is with us, that God is in us, that God works through us, that God works for us to convict us and to instruct us and to lead us and to guide us and to comfort us and to counsel us, to nurture us and to gift us and to use us and to change us. And I want us to recognize and cherish that Jesus' words are true. That he has done exactly as he has promised he would. And that it is better. It is to our advantage that he has done what he has done. Let me pray for us this morning. Holy Spirit, I am so grateful for you. I want to thank you that the words that Jesus spoke about you were true, that you have come and that you live in us and that you live through us and that you convict us of our sin, (coughs) that you teach us to pray, (coughs) 
that you give us faith, that you empower us to love, and that you make us new creations in Christ. Thank you that you send us out into the times and the places that we find ourselves in that you have determined and that you gift us in ways as we specifically need so that we can do all that you have prepared for us to do. Thank you for teaching us scriptures, for bringing things to our mind and our remembrance exactly when we need them, for leading us, for guiding us into truth, for not leaving us in our error and our sin. Thank you that you enable us to worship and to glorify Jesus, to see him more clearly as God. And Jesus, thank you for dying in our place for our sin and trading our sin for your righteousness. And thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to be with us always, for not leaving us as orphans, but for giving us a new heart and a new spirit that enables us to cry out, Father to God. We love you and we thank you. And we ask that you would compel us to treasure you rightly for who you are for your glory and your namesake. Amen.